0: It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Thursday, July 30, 2020. On today's episode, TV and movie librarian Stephen Tomlinson is here. He's going to be speaking about the life and career of the American actor Montgomery Clift. Following that, we have another lecture from Stephen. This is called A Brief History of Drive-In Movie Theatres, and he really gets into Uh, how they started, and the era they started in, why they worked, why they were popular. Um, It's a very fascinating, interesting topic, and he does it justice, and I think you'll enjoy that. Before handing it over to Stephen, just a quick announcement about some city business. Uh, As you may have heard, this week, the inside of the Eleanor London Code St. Luke Public Library has reopened to patrons, and here's what you need to know if you'd like to visit the library. First thing is that a library membership is required. Now, if you live in Cote St. Luke, the library memberships are free. uh, So you can call the library and they can help you uh, get that sorted out if you don't already have one. All the visits to the library have to be scheduled in advance. Uh, And the reason is is that we have a limited number of spaces in the library at one time. Uh, So we're doing it by appointment only. Now, you can either call the library at 514 485-6900 485-6900 and then press three um, and you'll be in touch with a librarian who can help you uh, get an appointment or you can do it online if you are so inclined you can visit csllibrary.org scheduling visits you'll also be able to find a link uh, to that on the library front page now, the visiting times are as follows. The, the spots that we have open uh, are on Sunday from noon until 5.30. So that's Sunday from noon to 5.30. And then uh, the rest of the week, Monday to Thursday, it's from 10.30 to 2.30. From 10.30 to 2.30 from Monday to Thursday. We're keeping Friday closed for the moment. Um, the librarians will give you the information, but the maximum visit of... Uh, to the library will be 50 minutes you have to enter and leave from the back entrance of the library so that is to say the parking lot side Uh, and of course you have to wear a face covering at all times and follow all the hygiene and physical distancing protocols inside the library that you're all familiar with Uh, and there's also some arrows on the floor because we want to direct people to walk in the library in a certain way just to minimize the people uh, sort of coming into contact with one another as they uh, walk through the library. Uh, if you have kids and you're interested in the children and teen department, it is only going to be open on Sundays for now. Uh, and children under nine must be accompanied by an adult at all time. Uh, so that's the basic information about the Eleanor London and St. Luke Public Library. Uh, things may change as we go on in the season, uh, but for now, that is how we are proceeding with indoor visits. And I should also mention that we are continuing we are continuing the um, sort of the drive-through service that we have, where people can pick up their books uh, from an exterior door in the back of the building. Uh, you can return books, you can pick up books, and you don't need to go inside the library. And for many people, that's the way they prefer to do it, and so we're going to continue that service uh, for the time being. Well, that's it for the uh, public service announcement about the library. Uh, and now it's on to the life of American actor Montgomery Clift. Here is Stephen Tomlinson.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Stephen Tomlinson of the Code St. Luke Public Library. And today I will be talking about one of the most legendary of Hollywood actors, Montgomery Clift, who in 1950, at the age of 30, seemed to have everything, youth, beauty, talent, and a lucrative film career with limitless possibilities. He had been nominated for an Oscar and would be again three more times. And though he never won, his performances have inspired countless actors from Marlon Brando to Al Pacino and Robert De Niro and more. But he did not die in a mortal idol like his contemporary James Dean, for example. He did not remain an enduring film star like, say, Cary Grant or John Wayne. In fact, he only ever made 17 movies before his death at the age of 45 in 1966, and so he is often forgotten, but really only by those who have never witnessed one of his indelible performances, each one marked by his exceptional talent, his vulnerability and intensity, and it has to be said by his exceptional good looks. You might even say that his talent was as dazzling as his beauty. Perhaps with just a little hyperbole, the great Italian film star Marcello Mastroianni once said, the true originator of the rebellious 20th century antihero is Montgomery Cliff. Not Marlon Brando or James Dean, but the restrained performer with the inner tension and those ancient melancholy eyes. His presence so unobtrusively strong that it lingered even when he was off camera. Quote there are two pieces of accepted wisdom about Montgomery Cliff. One is that he was a closeted gay or bisexual man who felt hugely burdened by his sexual orientation. The other is that his fateful car crash in 1956, which permanently damaged his face and left him in chronic pain, accelerated his alcohol and drug dependencies and seriously harmed his self-esteem. And both are widely thought to have contributed to Cliff's premature death from heart failure 10 years later. Montgomery Cliff had the most earnest of faces, big pleading eyes, a set jaw, And the sort of immaculate side part to his hair that you just don't see anymore he played the desperate the drunken and the deceived and the trajectory of his life was as tragic as that in any of his films creating an aesthetic of suffering that has got it the way we think about him even today but for five years from 1948 to 1953 he set hollywood aflame from the start cliff was framed as a rebel and an individual. Nevertheless, stardom came almost immediately to him. When he first arrived in Hollywood, he didn't sign a contract, waiting until after the success of his first two movies to negotiate a three-picture deal with Paramount that allowed him almost total discretion over his projects, which was unheard of, especially for such a young star. But he had been stubborn, and if Paramount wanted him, they'd have to give him what he wanted, a power differential that would go on to structure the star-studio relationship for the next 40 years. Sure, he was handsome, strikingly so, but those looks also made him something of a curiosity. Cliff was moody, dark, and sultry, with a kind of smoldering appearance that made studio executives nervous. Indeed, he soon became a challenge for Hollywood press agents who felt forced to dispel perceptions that he was too pretty or not quite masculine enough. Edward Montgomery Cliff was born in 1920, the product of an upper middle class family from Omaha, Nebraska, that lost all of its money in the Depression after moving to New York City. Perhaps for this reason, even at the height of his success, Montgomery Cliff often had the aura of the penniless aristocrat. Reportedly, His banker father was bigoted and often abusive, and it's claimed that in scenes requiring rage or anger, Monty would dredge up his deep-seated resentment towards him. His mother, by most accounts, was a tireless social climber and a bit of a snob. As is the case in families where members don't know how to handle a range of emotions, he seemed to have learned to protect himself by denying those emotions. That denial, the inability to reconcile his feelings, and the burying of his own sense of self would lead to a life of constant inner conflict, summed up perhaps perfectly by what Monty once told the actor Robert Ryan. When you think of me, think of two men, what you see and the one within, quote Ryan agreed. He said he was such a man of vast contradictions Sober, he eluded himself with fantasies. Drunk, he became savage and scornful of any illusions. Unlike his two siblings, Monty always struggled in school, but found his calling in the theater at an early age. No doubt this colorful world of make believe also served as a refuge and an escape from his home life. He made his Broadway debut at the age of 15 and was among the first students at New York's famed Actors Studio. And by the time Cliff moved to Hollywood ten years later, he was already an acting veteran. But who was Montgomery Cliff? As a Hollywood star, how might we best characterize him? I mean, you can't really pin him down, not say the way you can with male stars from an earlier generation like John Wayne, Cary Grant, and Clark Gable. Was he your virtuous hero, as in Red River? Would he marry a dowdy heiress for her money, as in the heiress? Was he capable of drowning his pregnant girlfriend, as in A Place in the Sun? Was he, in fact, even interested in women at all? The film critic Andrew Sarris once said, you could never quite place Montgomery Cliff." On screen, he was a chameleon, always furtive. And you know what? He was very much that off-screen as well. Director-producer Howard Hawks, who had seen Cliff on Broadway, was the one who brought him to Hollywood for his big-budget Western Red River. There was no doubt in his mind that Monty's quiet intensity was the sort of quality that would resonate powerfully on screen. And as such, Hawks would instruct him to underplay his scenes. In Red River, John Wayne leads a cattle drive, the culmination of over 14 years of work, from Texas to its destination in Missouri. But his tyrannical behavior along the way causes a mutiny led by his adopted son, played by Cliff. Critics and audiences alike were taken immediately with a stunningly handsome young man who stands up to the larger-than-life John Wayne. But there was something else about him. He's not your typical on-screen cowboy or male hero figure at all. Where the hard-driving individualist, the tough guy, remained an ever-present in Hollywood, no better represented than by an actor like John Wayne, such types were beginning to give way, or at least share the screen with more sensitive introspective and socially aware male protagonists exemplified by Cliff in this film. Indeed, in Red River, it is the Cliff character with his democratic spirit who is better adapted than Wayne to create a necessary consensus and willing compliance among the men in order to finish the cattle drive. You know, In spite of protests from the film's star, Wayne, who thought Monty too slight a frame to be convincing in the role, especially when their two characters must fight at the end of the film, Red River is near perfect, and would go on to become one of the biggest movies of 1948, and certainly one of the greatest westerns ever made. And Cliff, he had managed to not only infuse his cowboy character with a degree of sensitivity, but make it seem like the most natural thing in the world. There was something going on behind his surface that was both magnetic and mysterious and audiences were riveted by it indeed Wayne himself may have been affected by it giving one of his very greatest performances and one that is as lean and economical i think as montgomery cliff's own monty would go on to say about his acting in this film i saw myself in red river And I knew I was going to be famous. So I decided to get drunk anonymously one last time. You know, he would get the chance to play opposite John Wayne again um, 10 years later. But he declined the role, the role of dude in Rio Bravo, which went to Dean Martin instead. The politically liberal Monty didn't want to work again, not with the far right Duke or the equally conservative Walter Brennan, who is also quite memorable in Red River. Though I'm sure it was never intended as such, Red River is perhaps the very best early example of a new dawn breaking over Hollywood in the late 40s and early 50s, one I hinted at earlier. In stark contrast to the archetypal, strong and silent performances of the pre-war generation, think of Gary Cooper men were increasingly presented in rebellious new terms that highlighted their sensitivity and their introspection over the go-it-alone toughness favored by earlier ones, like John Wayne, like Gary Cooper. Peter Biskind, in his book, Seeing is Believing, How Hollywood Taught Us to Stop Worrying and Love the 1950s, has said the following, and I quote here, By this period, the tough, hard-boiled, Hemingway-like male of the 30s and 40s, the man who hid his feelings, if he had any, who endured adversity alone with proud, stoical silence or wooden unconcern, had seen his best days. The new male stars were men like the tough but tender Rock Hudson, the slight and sensitive Montgomery Cliff, and the mixed-up and moody James Dean. Though Red River was technically Cliff's first film, shot in 1946, its release was delayed due to litigation brought by Howard Hughes, who claimed that the storyline too closely resembled his own production, that of The Outlaw, made in 1943. So Monty's second film, Fred Zinnemann's The Search, actually came out first. In The Search, made in 1948, One of the first Hollywood films to address the Holocaust, by the way, however indirectly, Cliff plays a soldier who helps a nine-year-old Czech boy and survivor to find his mother in post-war Germany. Cliff's tender, refreshingly earnest performance in this film is just exactly that harbinger for this new kind of acting style in that he doesn't sound rehearsed almost recklessly so, as he fills the space with unusual facial gestures and sometimes mumbled, even ad-libbed lines. It's a more realistic form of acting that is more effortlessly naturalistic, or at least it looks that way, and not afraid to show emotional vulnerability, much more so than was typical in Hollywood to that point. Nevertheless, it was really Marlon Brando who would receive most of the credit for such innovations, though his breakthrough film, A Streetcar Named Desire, would not be made for another two years. Filmmaker Peter Bogdanovich has expressed a similar sentiment. He said, Cliff was a kind of unacknowledged leader. His performances heralded a new acting style. After Cliff came Brando, and after Brando, James Dean. But it was Cliff who was the purest, the least mannered of these actors, and perhaps the most sensitive, certainly the most poetic, quote-unquote. Most unusual for a studio movie, Zinneman had allowed Cliff a considerable amount of control over the script of The Search. And Cliff would remember that experience of creative freedom very fondly. And it would remain one of his favorite roles, earning him the first of his four Oscar nominations. Montgomery Cliff's private life was mostly pretty boring, from what we can tell. He didn't date much. He didn't flirt. He didn't hang out in public. His public image was, more than anything else, a little bit confusing, unmalleable to Hollywood's pre-existing star categories, I think it's fair to say. I mean, he was handsome and beguiling on screen, creating an appetite for that same Cliff off-screen, so the fan magazines, they would get creative. Take the August 1949 cover of Movieland magazine, for example, which featured a suited, respectable-looking Monty paired with a tantalizing headline, Making Love the Cliff Way. (laughs) But when readers looked inside the magazine, all they found was a two-page spread of stills from the heiress, featuring Cliff in various stages, a flirtation with Olivia de Havilland, while extrapolating that his kissing style was, and I quote here, I'm not making this up, soft yet possessively brutal, pleading but demanding all, quote Based on the Henry James novel, Washington Square, the heiress is the story of a plain yet wealthy young woman, played by Olivia de Havilland, who comes under the lovelorn spell of the charming and handsome Montgomery Cliff. At one point in the film, de Havilland sighs... Father, don't you think he's the most beautiful man you've ever seen? But we in the audience, as we watch the film, we ask ourselves, is Monty's character truly in love with her, or is he simply after her money? That's the question we ask. Certainly the studio had marketed Cliff as a sex symbol prior to the movie's release in 1949, and while Cliff had already had a sizable female following, When Olivia de Havilland's character ends up rejecting Clifton, the final scene of the movie, and quite rightly so, um, she was flooded with angry fan letters because of that. Monty hated his performance in The Heiress, especially being filmed in Soft Focus, which was something studio-era filmmakers tended to reserve for their leading ladies, I think this was probably because he thought it didn't make him look masculine enough. But otherwise, Montgomery Cliff would always resist the movie star image. He became almost studiously messy in old chinos and frayed shirts, said a friend once about his appearance off screen. He told me he would not give up his $40 a month flat because he liked living in New York to be around ordinary people. He said that the inbred hothouse atmosphere of Hollywood makes you lose contact with the real world. And suddenly then, real people, they just don't exist for you anymore. I think Montgomery Cliff knew that Hollywood and the press thought him eccentric and unpredictable, and they certainly found it exceedingly difficult to pigeonhole him. For Monty, it was all about maintaining a modicum of artistic and personal integrity. Look, I'm not odd, he once said. I'm just trying to be an actor. Not a movie star, an actor. And almost as if to underscore that feeling, he once appeared in a series of photographs taken by Stanley Kubrick for Look Magazine in 1949 entitled Montgomery Cliff, Glamour Boy in Baggy Pants. He also became the subject of a Los Angeles Times article entitled the rumpled movie Idol. And however much this may have been the real Monty, at least in terms of outward appearance, it cannot have pleased the publicists at Paramount very much. Not only did he care little for his appearance off-screen, he somewhat infamously owned only one suit in this period. Monty also had a beat-up car that was 10 years old, and his best friend's We're all outside the movie business. So, all in all, not your typical Hollywood superstar actor. In fact, Cliff would spend as little time in Hollywood as possible. He was, in his own words, nothing more than a ordinary second-class wolf, quote-unquote. When the people who knew him talked about Cliff, they talked about his acting skill and his beauty, but they also talked about what an offbeat and sometimes strange guy he was. You know, he he seems to have survived in this period on the same meal every day, mostly combinations of steak, eggs, and orange juice. And he eschewed nightclubs, instead spending his spare time reading Chekhov, classic works of history, economics and even Aristotle, if you can believe it, whom he praised for his belief in happiness and the gentle art of the soul. And when he wasn't reading or exhausting himself in preparation for a part, he liked to go to the local night court and attend court cases just to study the humanity on display. Though I guess I can see how these things might have helped in the practice of his art, which was acting. In 1949, to promote The Heiress, Paramount arranged to have the young Elizabeth Taylor accompany him to the premiere of the film. Cliff reportedly had little idea who Taylor was at the time and dreaded the evening ahead, but the pair instantly became very close friends. Friends who would go on to make three films together. In fact, there might have been a fourth film, but Cliff would die prior to its production in 1966. The first of those films with Taylor was 1951's A Place in the Sun in which Monty portrays the doomed George Eastman, a poor relation of a wealthy industrialist who takes an entry-level factory job at one of his uncle's facilities. His rich family treats him as an outsider, but Eastman is eager to impress and works hard to advance in the company, but he also begins a relationship with a fellow factory worker, played by Shelley Winters, until he meets Elizabeth Taylor's young socialite with whom he immediately falls in love. The fact that Winter's character is pregnant and expects him to marry her, well, that very much complicates the situation. Now, like his previous film, The Heiress, A Place in the Sun is a very class-conscious movie about an upwardly mobile young man and may remind us that Montgomery Cliff was himself raised as a kind of an American aristocrat whose family had lost all of its money. I think some of the most characteristic on-screen images of Monty are are from A Place in the Sun. Two kinds of images, really. One, of Monty as the troubled outsider. And the second, when he appears less in a romantic embrace with Elizabeth Taylor and much more in need of her mothering, so to speak. So troubled is his character in this film. In fact, such scenes, I think, reflect a growing off-screen dependency on others, especially... Taylor herself in the years ahead. Nevertheless, A Place in the Sun was a great success and Montgomery Cliff earned his second best actor Oscar nomination while establishing his reputation as one of the most important actors working in Hollywood. But A Place in the Sun would also receive special media attention due to the rumors and fan speculation that Cliff and Taylor were dating in real life. But that was mostly studio-generated publicity that billed them as the most beautiful couple in Hollywood, quote-unquote, which both the press and the public ate up. And on the evidence of so many glamour shots from this period together, it is not hard to see why. They truly were incredibly beautiful together. Whatever the nature of their relationship, sexual or platonic, the connection between Cliff and Taylor was immediate and lasting. And so what began as a cooked-up studio romance seems quite genuinely to have become a deep relationship of a kind. Indeed, Taylor once said proudly, if somewhat cryptically, we loved each other in the most complete sense of the word, quote According to his biographers, Monty's most meaningful spiritual relationships were with women. He had a close friendship with a woman named Myra Letts, whom the gossip columnist tried arduously to frame as a love interest. But Cliff's rebuttal was firm, emphasizing that they were neither in love nor engaged. They'd known each other for 10 years, she helped him with his work, and, as he said, those romantic rumors are embarrassing to both of us. He was also close with actress, stage actress Libby Holman, 16 years his senior, who had become a notorious feature in the gossip columns following the suspicious death of her wealthy husband, as well as for rumors of lesbianism and her general practice of dating younger men, God forbid. Cliff was so protective of Holman that when offered the plum role of the male lead in Sunset Boulevard, he turned it down, reportedly to avoid any suggestion that she was his own delusional Norma Desmond, using a handsome young man to pursue her lost stardom. The truth is more likely that Monty was deeply compartmentalized personally and carried on intimate friendships with a large number of people, each person feeling that they were the center of his world. Monty led many, many lives, said friend Jeannie Green, and we were each merely part of one of those lives. According to acting coach and close friend Mira Rostova, Monty had a, what she called, an underground existence. Monty was totally split sexually, she claimed. That was the core of his tragedy, she believed, because he never stopped being conflicted and he never stopped feeling guilty about being conflicted. He wanted to have a lasting relationship with someone. He tried to have lasting relationships but he was unable to, quote-unquote. Deborah Carr, with whom he would star in From Here to Eternity, put it more succinctly. Monty wanted to love women, but he was attracted to men, and he crucified himself for it. The unspoken public truth throughout his adult life was that Montgomery Cliff was gay, or at the very least bisexual. Indeed, the public revelation about his sexuality did not even emerge until well after his death in the late 1970s, when two high-profile biographies revealed as much. Though various writings from within Hollywood itself had earlier indicated that Cliff's sexuality wasn't entirely a secret. Truman Capote, for one, in his unpublished novel Answered Prayers, had written all about it. But maintaining his career while circumventing his sexuality must have been very problematic for Montgomery Cliff, as it was for some of his contemporaries, as well as for many actors in the past. According to one biographer, blackmail attempts had been made upon him, but that such attempts were dealt with by Cliff's lawyers. The press was always a problem, with famed gossip columnist Hedda Hopper asking his agent about the matter of his sexuality as early as 1948. And stories implying that Cliff was anything other than straight were routinely quashed by the studio. No doubt Monty's wariness of Hollywood and desire to stay in New York City was not only to maintain his artistic independence, but also to protect his private life from the kind of show marriage, like Rock Hudson's, that the Hollywood publicity machine might insist upon for his closeted gay stars. Like those other 1950s idols, Hudson himself, James Dean, Tab Hunter, and Anthony Perkins, Montgomery Clift's private life was carefully concealed from the public. But that didn't mean that the gossip press didn't hint at something, you know, different about him. But at the studios, the prevailing attitude had been, don't ask, don't tell, and most importantly, don't get caught. And they could be counted on to manufacture a false persona for public consumption. One such actor they went to great lengths in doing this with was Raymond Burr. But at what cost, many actors like Raymond Burr, like Rock Hudson, were able to sustain the macho image, uh, very much so in Rock Hudson's case, that their screen roles demanded while successfully navigating murkier sexual waters in their personal lives. Other actors were not. And one such was Montgomery Cliff himself, who, according to the playwright and friend, Arthur Lawrence, was both miserable and guilt-ridden about it. The time Monty spent out in Hollywood only made it worse, Arthur Lawrence is quoted as saying. It said to him, you are a pariah if you pursue what you want. End quote. Now, living a deeply ingrained lie, we can only imagine the type of psychological damage that might have entailed for Monty. So it's not difficult to link, if only in a speculative way, his frustrated sexual identity with his growing dependence on drugs and alcohol. After being urged by friends to seek help for his drinking, Monty started seeing a therapist in late 1950 who noted that he suffered from what she called or he actually, I'm not quite sure, a lack of self-esteem. And that most of the time, Monty seemed in acute distress, almost close to mental collapse. Perhaps for this reason, he seems almost too perfectly cast as the conscience-stricken priest at the center of Alfred Hitchcock's 1951 melodrama, I confess, just as this may explain why, Montgomery Cliff never made a comedy or a musical. Indeed, it's almost impossible to imagine him in either one of those. Instead, Cliff played a lot of loners and outsiders, as he did the following year, most famously in From Here to Eternity, as a rebellious boxer and model of rugged male integrity who wants to fight no more. And you can see what a big star he was at this time in 1953, getting co-billing with Burt Lancaster and above the title of the film itself. One story demonstrates just how respected Cliff was as an actor. Burt Lancaster was so nervous to play his first scene with Monty that he was literally shaking. Lancaster was a natural performer who'd never been method trained and was somewhat intimidated by those, like Cliff, who had. From Here to Eternity earned Cliff his third Oscar nomination for Best Actor. You know, he had not been overly concerned about winning the previous two, but by all accounts, he really wanted to win this time around and was deeply disappointed when he lost out to William Holden for *Stalag 17. He reportedly said, what do I have to do to prove I can act? But both Donna Reed and Frank Sinatra did win acting Oscars for the film for Best Supporting Actress and Actor respectively, and As before, with Taylor in A Place in the Sun, Cliff helped drive their performances too, Sinatra saying later on that he learned more about acting from Monty than from anyone else. At the height of his career, and after From Here to Eternity, Montgomery Cliff more or less dropped out of Hollywood for a little while, working a little bit in in Europe. Um, In one film for Vittorio De Sica, Indiscretions of an American Wife, um, also starring Jennifer Jones, then signed a three-year contract with MGM in 1955 to make Raintree County, a rather staid romantic film set during the American Civil War, which reunited him with his A Place in the Sun co-star, Elizabeth Taylor. The script wasn't necessarily that special, but it seems that working with Taylor was enough to pull him out of semi-retirement and back to Hollywood. During the filming, Cliff and Taylor seem to have rekindled their you know, is it or isn't it a relationship? But as I've indicated, really impossible for us to know if the two ever had a relationship that went beyond the platonic. What we do know is that on the night of May 12th 1956, After a dinner party at Elizabeth Taylor's house, Cliff fell asleep at the wheel driving home and smashed his car into a telephone pole. Though he survived, he suffered severe nerve damage in the left side of his face, rendering it mostly immobile, as well as other facial damage and damage to his back that would plague him the rest of his life. That facial damage necessitated plastic surgery, which permanently changed his appearance, and the intense physical and psychological pain he experienced led to an increase in Cliff's consumption of alcohol and addictive pain medications. After months of surgeries, recovery, and physical therapy, Monty went back to work on Raintree County, but the film's director Edward Dimitrick would now shoot him mostly from his right profile because That side of his face had the least physical damage. But Monty's pain, it still appears evident. His body stiff, his face a melancholy shadow of what had previously been almost perfect in its beauty. In truth, he wasn't truly disfigured, not in any really horrible sense, of course. He He did, however, appear much older, badly weathered, and certainly weary. And by the time Raintree County made its way to theaters in 1957, he'd been mostly off the screen for about four years, but looked like he'd aged more than a decade. Even before Raintree County, the decline had been visible. Writer and friend Christopher Eicherwood would tracked Cliff's decline in his journals and noted by August 1955 that Monty was drinking himself out of a career. On the set of Raintree, the crew had designated words to communicate to each other how drunk Cliff was. Bad was known as Georgia, very bad was Florida, and worst of all was Zanzibar. And all this wasn't just in the private record. In October 1956, gossip columnist Luella Parsons had reported on what she called Cliff's very bad health, and of Libby Holman's attempts to clean him up. Other than this, his decline was never explicitly evoked, but on screen in Raintree County, it was there for all to see. In The Young Lions, in 1958, released just two years after the accident, it was all too visible again, especially the pain. Perhaps more than anyone else involved in the project, Cliff had the most riding on the film's success. In a business where, as it said, you're only as good as your last film, it was very important for him to have this one be a hit. The Young Lions was his first real chance after the debilitating accident to prove himself to his critics and the public, as well as the studio chiefs, that he still had a future as an actor. And Monty seems to have poured his very lifeblood into his performance as a Jewish American soldier during World War II, and seemed confident that it would be the role to prove that he still had it as a professional actor. Indeed, Monty said afterwards about his performance in The Young Lions that his character, Noah Ackerman, was the greatest performance of his life. I couldn't have given more, he said, and I'll never be able to do it again, ever. But this time, Monty received no recognition for it from the Academy, however great we may think his performance in The Young Lions. And despite its its great success, Monty was... No longer the hot property he used to be. His accident and reputation for being difficult to work with, mostly because of his drinking, made sure of that. His friend Elizabeth Taylor, however, used her power as perhaps the biggest star in Hollywood at that time to insist that Cliff be cast in her new project, Suddenly Last Summer, made in 1959. It was a gamble, as Hollywood insiders certainly knew how troubled Cliff was, and as a consequence he was virtually uninsurable on set, but the producer Sam Spiegel decided to go forward no matter the risk. Suddenly Last Summer is an adaptation of the play by Tennessee Williams, the subject matter of which involves Cliff's character assisting in the cover-up of a dead man's apparent homosexuality, which must have sparked mixed emotions within him. And there were problems on set. Cliff had trouble with his dialogue and couldn't get through the longer scenes, having to split them up into two or three chunks. Director Joseph Mankiewicz had wanted to replace Monty, but Taylor and her co-star, well, their co-star, forgive me, Catherine Hepburn, both defended and supported Monty. For Wild River in 1960, director Elia Kazanin ordered him to stay sober on the shoot, otherwise he would refuse to work with him. He would known Monty since his Broadway years and liked him enough, but never achieved the sort of bond with him that he had with Brando. Monty followed through on on his promise not to drink, uh, for the most part at least. But his personal decline continued, though not necessarily the quality of the film projects. In 1961, Cliff appeared in The Misfits a very good, very interesting contemporary Western, perhaps best known as the final completed film of both Marilyn Monroe and Clark Gable. The director John Huston supposedly brought in Cliff because he thought he'd have a soothing effect on Monroe, who was deeply embroiled with her own addictions and her own personal demons, of course. But even Monroe, who only had a year left to live, famously told someone on set that Cliff was, and I quote here, the only person I know who is in even worse shape than I am. Indeed, for Monty, the shoot was incredibly taxing, both mentally and physically. But the film had been especially hard on Clark Gable, who, although admiring Monty as one hell of an actor, in his words, was driven to his wit's end by the endless delays, caused by both Marilyn and Monty's unreliable behavior on set. In fact, Gable would die of a heart attack less than a month after the completion of The Misfits. In Judgment at Nuremberg, made in 1961, Monty couldn't remember his lines and had to ad-lib them all, even though his part was only a 15-minute supporting role. The film's director, Stanley Kramer, wrote about this in his memoirs. Finally, I said to him, just forget the damn lines, Monty. Let's say you're on the witness stand, the prosecutor says something to you, then the defense attorney bitterly attacks you, and you have to reach for a word in the script. That's all right. Go ahead and reach for it. Whatever the word may be, it doesn't really matter. Just turn to Tracy, Spencer Tracy, on the bench whenever you feel the need, and ad-lib something. It will be all right, because it will convey the confusion in your character's mind. Kramer continued. He seemed to calm down after that. He wasn't always close to the script, but whatever he said fitted in perfectly, and he came through with as good a performance as I had hoped. End quote. In fact, so effective, so unnerving, was Monty's performance in Judgment at Nuremberg, playing, of course, a Holocaust victim irretrievably damaged by suffering, that Monty earned another Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor this time. Nevertheless, Cliff's personal disintegration continued after that. He was such a mess on the set of Freud in 1962, again for John Huston, that Universal sued him. And as a result, he became uninsurable in the studios. They would no longer touch him. Between 1963 and 1966, he faded more or less completely from public view, emerging only to film the final performance in the European spy thriller, The Defector, in 1966. Elizabeth Taylor then attempted to rescue her friend once again by demanding he co-star in her upcoming film, Reflections in a Golden Eye. But before production could begin, in July of that year, Cliff died of heart failure in New York City, wholly without fanfare and somewhat forgotten. He was only 45 years old. Montgomery Cliff, he breaks your heart. Aside from his earliest films, Red River and The Search, you can always see his pain, always sense his vulnerability on screen. And like his friends, like Elizabeth Taylor, you want to help him. But he's always just out of reach. And then you consider the waste, the lost promise that he only completed 17 movies. And had his, had his demons not overtaken him, he might have left us an even richer legacy. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to Stephen Tomlinson of the Co St. Luke Public Library, and I hope that you've enjoyed this talk about the life and career of Montgomery Cliff. I also invite you to join me tomorrow at this time for lockdown viewing, when I will provide some recommendations for movies to watch and where to watch them. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at tomlinson at codesaintluke.org or by means of the library's Facebook page or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving a message. All the best and bye-bye for now. Hi everyone, this is Stephen Tomlinson of the Code St. Luke Public Library and today I will be presenting a brief history of the drive-in movie theater. Many of us who have been to the drive-in as children will forever remember clearly looking up at that big movie screen and experiencing something bigger than life itself. It was a summertime ritual and it almost didn't matter what was playing. For a child like me in the 1970s, the movie was secondary to the thrill of the drive-in experience itself, which was a uniquely different one from that of an indoor movie theater. Today, drive-ins are harder to find, but are making a modest comeback thanks to COVID-19. With regular movie theaters still closed, the drive-in experience promises watching a movie from the safety of your vehicle, and the novelty for many of doing so under the stars. Under the stars, what could be better than that? Drive-in movie theaters were most popular in the 1950s and the 1960s, when there were thousands of them across North America. The middle class was then at its most affluent, and seemingly every family could afford a car. And as such, a kind of car culture developed, with people trying to do everything in their cars, including eating in their cars, and of course, watching movies from their cars. It's been 80 years since a New Jersey auto parts store manager named Richard Hollingshead hit upon the idea of the drive-in movie theater itself. The wonder of his concept, of course, as with all the world's greatest, most inspired, most life-affirming inventions, is that, despite how obvious it seems now, no one had thought of it before. Or if anyone had thought of it before, they hadn't bothered to get a patent on the idea as Hollingshead did on May 16th, 1933. In any case, no one had had the wherewithal to actually build and then open one, as he and three other investors did when they cut the ribbon on the world's first drive-in movie theater in Camden, New Jersey, on June 6th, 1933. Admission per screening was 25 cents a car, plus 25 cents for each person in that car, Total attendance for three screenings on opening night was said to be about 600 cars. And I think one of the reasons that drive-ins would later emphasize the family experience was so they could charge by the car load. Canada's first drive-in was the Skyway Drive-In in Stony Creek, Ontario. Comparatively speaking, we were very late to the game. It opened in 1946. But of course, Canada would always have a problematic relationship with drive-ins because of the weather. By the end of World War II, there were about a hundred drive-ins in the United States. Most of them were built on farmland, all of them invariably miles away from the city center. When drive-ins first started, they didn't have distinctive names. They were just called drive-in theater. But I think they really take off after 1945 because of a convergence of factors. Car sales, for one, had skyrocketed with full employment and cars became somewhat representative of middle-class status, you know, of having made it. And so drive-ins would provide an opportunity of a kind to show off that new car. Also, the period immediately after the war is the start of the baby boom generation. And so the combination of new kids and new cars would create a special experience that the entire family could share at the drive-in. Another thing that happened, as in Canada, and especially with Cote St. Luke itself, though I don't think there was ever a drive-in movie theater here, was that with newfound affluence, home ownership became increasingly possible, and so families moved to the new suburbs. And as drive-ins grew up around family-oriented suburbs, or vice versa... They would function for much of their existence as convenient, family-oriented establishments. Also, there really wasn't much else to do in the suburbs, as, for example, shopping malls had not yet become ubiquitous. And another thing was that television was not yet big either, so both drive-ins and indoor movie theaters really did not have much competition for entertainment dollars and leisure time until well into the 1950s close by, and easily accessible from what were often newly built highways, you didn't even need a babysitter to go to the drive-in. And if the children were young enough, you might even take them in their pajamas. It was an adventure for kids who might, of course, not even be interested in the movie itself, and would in any case often fall asleep before the beginning of the second feature. In fact, in the 1950s, it wouldn't have been uncommon to see advertisements for drive-ins that highlighted this novel concept of going to a movie without having to hire a babysitter. And so the drive-in experience was always very different from attending an indoor movie theater. For example, at the height of the Hollywood studio system in the 1930s and 1940s, going to the movies and the studios owned their theaters, by the way, was almost like going to the opera. Indeed, the indoor theater was often designed as a kind of movie palace, which people would often dress formally to attend, though that idea would, of course, gradually wither away. Unlike this concept of the movie palace and its formality, the drive-in experience itself was deliberately designed from the outset to be far more relaxed. For example, there was always a nice aspect of privacy present in the drive-in experience that was not at all available to audiences at the indoor theater. The experience was or could be somewhat social at a drive-in, as we'll see, like living in a little pop-up neighborhood of a kind for a few hours. But unlike indoor theaters, you could speak openly in your car and not bother a stranger, for example, as you would in an indoor theater. Of course, sometimes the experience of the drive-in might be a little too private and a little too relaxed. And so by the 1950s, especially, they became increasingly popular with young lovers who might not have anywhere else to go. And to combat such wantonness, early driving theaters would often hire private security, believe it or not, to keep an eye on things in order to enforce that quote-unquote family experience that they wished to promote. And because they catered to families, they invariably had playgrounds, usually right in front of and below the huge screen, of which there was only one in this period, in part to encourage families to come early and to spend money at the snack bar. But the playgrounds weren't the only added attractions. Some drive-ins had bumper cars, some had go-kart tracks, others even had miniature golf courses and train rides for the kids. This was meant to be a complete entertainment experience. Every drive-in screening would advertise trailers before the movie, encouraging patrons to visit the snack bar during the intermission between movies, or at any time during the movie itself. Indeed, there was often a countdown clock, that's what they were called, countdown clocks, to count down the time you had to go to the washroom and or stock up on your refreshments, so that you might get back to your car and not miss any of the movie to come, which was something that of course, indoor theaters never had. But as with today's surviving indoor movie theaters, concessions were always the most significant source of income for the owners of the drive-ins. And for attendees, having a meal was often entirely a part of the experience of going to the drive-in. That was something you just didn't get in an indoor movie theater, because of course you were meant to be at a drive-in for several hours watching two movies with a lengthy intermission in between them. Of course, everyone who ever attended a drive-in in in the distant past will remember the old speaker boxes that would hang on car windows. They were the ever present icon of the drive-in theater right up to the early 1980s when they were replaced with AM radio signals. You know, after paying, you would drive to an open space facing the screen and adjacent to which there would be a pole with that small wired speaker box that you would then detach and hang from your car window. But in reality, the sound produced by these speakers was very tinny and generally quite poor. And they were hard for the drive-ins to maintain, too, because inevitably the wiring would go bad and they'd have to dig up the ground, or even worse, the asphalt, in order to fix them. And that that was a lot of work. There was a lot of vandalism, too, and often people would even drive off forgetting that the speakers were still attached to the windows with some obvious damaging results to both speaker and automobile. Almost all drive-ins in Canada were wired for heaters, which you would pick up at the concession stand and plug into the base of the speaker pole. Some drive ins in Canada remained open until November, but most closed in the weeks following Labor Day weekend, usually in late September or early October, and then would reopen in April or May of the following year. Originally, the drive in screens were made of wood, which was coated with a highly reflective paint to better reflect the image being projected usually from the same building that held the snack bar. But these screens were subject to such things as termites and high winds, and eventually would be replaced by corrugated metal structures. But there were also structures made of concrete blocks, which would of course stand the test of time only to be torn down in subsequent decades. For economic reasons. At least until 1953 or so, with the introduction of widescreen cinematography, the screens would be the standard 133 to 1 ratio, the size of which might be 2,500 square feet. Something else also changed after the war, and that is with the growth of the suburbs in tandem with the proliferation of this new means of seeing a movie, drive-ins couldn't just be called drive-in theater anymore they had to have distinctive if mostly generic names the most common of which were sunset drive-in starlight drive-in stardust drive-in sky skyview skylight a whole series of variations on the word sky or star Moonlight drive-in, that that was another popular one. And then with these at least somewhat distinctive names came screen structures with elaborate facade murals on the back of them, which were often lit up by neon that you could spot, and quite deliberately so, from a mile away. The number of new drive-ins skyrocketed between 1946 and 1948. In 1949, There were 1000 of them in 1951, 2000 drive-ins by August, 1952 drive-in movie theater attendance had actually exceeded the attendance for indoor movie theaters. And when you think about it, it kind of makes sense because drive-ins of course had a much greater capacity. Larger ones would hold between usually 2,500 to 3,000 cars, but it was not uncommon for drive-in theaters to have a capacity even greater than that. There was a drive-in outside of Milwaukee in the 1950s that had a 10,000 car capacity. At the height of their popularity in 1958, there were more than 5,000 drive ins in the United States alone, after which the number begins to decrease gradually. Today, there are just a few hundred. But in the 1950s, drive ins were so popular that on weekends it was not uncommon for traffic to be backed up, as invariably there would only be one ticket booth. Throughout the 1950s, there were frequent what were called buck nights, or their monetary equivalents in later years. You know, all your car could hold for $1 or some such similar price. And sneaking into a drive-in, that, that would almost be a rite of passage for many young people. You know, usually in the trunk of the automobile, if you can imagine such a thing. Something else that significantly separated indoor from outdoor movie theaters was that most of the movie studios had owned their own exhibition chain of indoor movie theaters. But whereas every city had had a Paramount theater, there was probably never a drive-in movie theater called the Paramount. And that's because the drive-in theater industry was comprised largely of independent operators and a few regional chains that the big studios didn't want to give their new films to. And that's why drive-ins always played so many B movies and second-run A movies. The traditional studios had had a stranglehold on the exhibition of new films until well into the 1950s. And because drive-ins could not get new movies until they were at least four to six months old, they would often show low-budget independent films and would usually run not just double bills but even triple bills on Friday and Saturday nights that might go on from dusk until dawn. But by the late 1950s, the competition from television would begin the long, slow decline of the drive-in as at-home family viewing proved more convenient and cheaper than a trip to the drive-in or to an indoor movie theater for that matter. Now by the early 1960s, with families now more often staying at home to watch TV together, the drive-in really starts to become the domain of teenagers who want to get out of the house and away from mom and dad. And of course, the movies themselves begin to reflect the interests and tastes of this teenager youth market. I mean, for example, who can forget the classic, I Was a Teenage Werewolf? This idea of the teenager really begins as a marketing concept in this period of the affluent 1950s and 60s. For the first time in history, Teenagers really didn't have to spend all of their free time working outside of school, and so a kind of distinct and popular teen culture emerged from which the drive-in was an important hangout. And as teenagers now have access to cars and expendable income, their main pursuit, like most teenagers in any age, is fun. And the drive-in, especially in the suburbs, was the place to go. And it even became a kind of ritual to do so. But why the drive-in? Almost like the contemporary shopping mall, teenagers might not have had other public spaces open to them in which to congregate and that were not under direct adult supervision, at least not ostensibly. You know, a lot of North American baby boomer memories of the drive-in are not necessarily of the movies themselves, the popcorn, or even the attachable speakers. For many, it was a place to fall in love. Teenagers had the environment of being in a car where it could be private or at least semi-private, which of course facilitates romance. And for that reason, we still have the popular conception of the drive-in as being a place for young people to make out. I suppose that was always true, but never more so than in the 1960s when drive-ins began to become known as passion pits, Unquote, where the human interaction from all the cars around you might be more entertaining than the very film itself. Still, as teenagers and young people become the dominant demographic at drive-ins in this period, the movies themselves continue to reflect their interests to an ever greater degree. First come the so-called beach blanket musicals uh, with Annette Funicello and Frankie Avalon. Uh, than the grade-B horror movies, which really become a constant throughout the decade. Horror films, of course, would have had the added benefit of facilitating closer contact among a young couple, as, at least in theory, each takes shelter in the other's arms. But uh, invariably a little bit campy, a little bit cheesy, these aren't the films that the big studios were making. The low-budget production company American International Pictures, AIP, really catered their product to drive-ins. AIP movies were not considered respectable by older audiences, but they were fun, and sometimes quite good, as with the Edgar Allan Poe adaptations directed by Roger Corman. But it was really the aura, especially with the horror movies, of something almost forbidden that made them so popular. Among youthful audiences, and that probably is still true today. But what these movies lacked in sophistication and budgets, they often more than made up for with audacious concepts. By the end of the 1960s, the countercultural rebellion and all the new liberties associated with it had spilled over into mass entertainment, especially with the relaxation of censorship laws and which we see at the drive-in with the emergence of biker films like the Wild Angels and other non-mainstream genres. This was the time of don't trust anyone over 30, right? Topical issues like sex, drugs, and rock and roll were extremely popular. The movie Easy Rider being the paradigm here, as drive-ins were by now catering to not just a youthful audience, but an edgier one as well all fairly tame by today's standards, but they did give drive-ins a very bad reputation among an older family values generation, which ultimately proved completely detrimental for drive-in business as they were now not attracting families at all. By the 1970s, movies were not only becoming edgier, but more violent too. Also, nudity was coming in as was coarse language and a general increase in more adult subject matter and sexual content. Another contributing factor in the decline of the drive-in was the energy crisis of the 1970s, in which the rise in gas prices led to a demand for smaller, more compact and gas efficient cars. But there's just something not quite right about going to the drive-in in a compact car. I mean, think about it. You really need to be able to stretch out and remain comfortable, right, for at least a few hours. So the declining economy of the 1970s really hit the drive-ins hard. Great, often vulgar neon lighting, which had always been a part of the drive-in iconography, was becoming a problem. Uh, One of which was that it's very expensive to keep up. Another thing is that city ordinances had begun to forbid or even outlaw the use of neon lighting as urban expansion encroached on what were once rural or semi-rural establishments. They were just too bright. Many drive-ins facing hard times in the 1970s like indoor movie theaters and urban centers, resorted to pornography to try and survive, but unsuccessfully in the long run, and certainly not without sullying the image of the drive-in theater which had by then already become somewhat disreputable among middle-class audiences for their association with rebellious, youth-oriented movies. And so, ironically, by the late 1970s, drive-ins had become the exact opposite of the family-friendly establishments that they had started out as. They were now in terminal decline, becoming run down, particularly those built in the 1940s and 50s. And they looked it especially after the neon came down. After all, we're talking about an aging infrastructure that was by now, in many cases, 30 to 40 years old. And old speakers that needed constant maintenance. And in any case, sounded very bad. And that was an issue, especially after Star Wars came out in 1977, marking the advent of the blockbuster movie which invariably had great sound. Another issue was the proliferation of shopping malls with the flight of retail stores to the suburbs, which also helped depress the drive-ins as the inevitable multiplex movie screens that accompanied them now provided direct competition. Drive-ins in turn began mimicking the indoor shopping mall multiplex by adding multiple screens of their own. And any drive-in that survives today usually has three to five screens. Cable TV and the VCR further depressed the market in the 1980s as they did for movie theaters in general, but especially for drive-ins because you now had an easy way to see a movie after it left the theater that had not been available before this, but inevitably they just weren't cool anymore with thousands having closed by the early or mid-1980s. Today, there are about 30 or 40 drive-ins left in all of Canada, almost half of them in Ontario. In Quebec, there are still a few, with the one in Saint-Eustache being perhaps the most notable, with five screens, room for 2,500 cars, and movies in English on Thursday nights many of the still existing drive-ins are run by community groups, and they have weekend screenings only. But even when commercially run, as with Saint-Eustache, drive-ins have almost entirely returned to the family-oriented experience of the 1950s, with only mainstream movies being presented on screen. You know, I suppose if we think of the drive-in today, mostly we think of it as a cultural icon of the 1950s and perhaps 1960s. If we see a drive-in depicted in the movies today, it's almost a surefire sign that the movie is set in that past. But because of COVID-19, we're also seeing something of a likely short term reemergence of the drive-in because with indoor cinemas still closed, it gives people something to do whether the family or a couple together under the stars, watching an outdoor movie. And hey, what could be better than that right now? Thank you very much. This has been Stephen Tomlinson of the Code St. Luke Public Library. I hope you've enjoyed this brief history of the drive-in movie theater and that you will join me tomorrow with Lockdown Viewing for movie and TV recommendations of what to watch and where to watch it. Take care. And bye-bye for now.
0: Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast. Thank you to our guests and thank you to you for tuning in today. If you're listening on the 2 p.m. call-in, we have another special item for you. Have a great day.